Okay, well, good evening. I'd like to welcome you to our study tonight. And uh, let's all bow together for a word of prayer, please. And then uh, we will get started with our study tonight. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the Word of God and the opportunity to open it up tonight. And I think of the topic that we'll be addressing. Uh, pray especially for young people as we think about um, understanding that you have designed uh, each of us with a very distinct purpose. As men, as women, uh, you're designed for marriage. All of these things are so very important for us to understand. And I pray that we would recognize the great distinction between the way that our culture looks at these issues and the way that we as Christians should look at these issues and help us to see the beauty of your ways. Help us to recognize that uh, your design is good and we need to make sure that we understand it and we embrace it. And so I ask that you'll guide our thoughts tonight and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Matthew chapter 5 is where we are again and um, I'm actually kind of dealing with more foundational issues before we actually get to expounding this exact text here. But I'm going to go ahead and read it again. We are in the Sermon on the Mount and we've been talking about Christ interpreting the law and helping us to understand a proper understanding of the commandments. We talked about the commandment uh, to not kill and obviously it's talking about murder and Jesus says it's not just a concern about murder but it's also a concern about hatred that's in the heart. And that hatred in the heart is what motivates murder. And so you violated the command if you choose to hate someone in your heart unjustifiably. And then he moves on from this issue of hatred to the issue of lust. And we talked about what lust is. Lust is a passion and that passion is not necessarily in and of itself sinful. It's when it's directed in a way that is forbidden and we see that in the text in front of us now what's very important when we talk about understanding how something becomes lust in other words it's a forbidden passion or expression of that passion versus what would be an appropriate um, understanding of how that passion should be directed really comes down to this question of well what is the purpose of marriage and how should we as Christians be looking at this issue so that's really where we're going on the foundational side. Let me read the text again, and then we will jump back into these foundational issues. Matthew 5, 27. <clears throat> you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. If thine right eye offend thee, pluck it out. And cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish. And not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish. And not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But... I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, committeth or causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Now obviously as we've read through this passage several weeks, you can see that there are a lot of challenging interpretive things. For instance, he talks about if your eye offends you, pluck it out. We're going to have to address what, what Jesus is saying about that. Or if your hand offends you, cut it off. Or... 
the fact that lust is something that is in the heart and a person looks with an intent that is sinful. He also addresses the issue of divorce. And you ask the question, what does he mean by fornication? So these are all things that we will get into when we talk about the actual expounding of the text in front of us. But what's important for us to remember is that when Jesus addressed this issue of lust, he begins by saying, don't you remember what it says at the beginning? Now there's a reason why he does that. Because it is our understanding of God's design that ultimately determines what is acceptable and even celebrated in the scriptures and what is evil, what is sinful, what is a sinful expression defined as lust. And so Matthew 19 reminds us of this. He says, have ye not read that which he which made them in the beginning made them male and female? In other words, Jesus is saying that the question that these religious leaders, the Pharisees were asking him, they should understand the answer to the question. He doesn't say, let me get into all these different scenarios and what about this and what about, he doesn't do that. He says, don't you understand what marriage is? Don't you understand what the purpose of marriage is? Don't you understand that God is the one who created male and female and for the cause, male and female, he creates marriage. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you understand what it is in God's design, it answers a whole lot of questions for you. And so I want us to get back into this question of what exactly is a biblical worldview on this issue of male and female in marriage. I want to say it this way. We are living in a time when this foundational understanding of who we are and why we exist is being lost. And it's being replaced with a worldview that is inconsistent with reality. And it is a vicious rebellion against God's revealed design. Now, it's amazing to me, but there are people in our society who are very educated. They have a lot of power. And they believe that there's more than just male and female. Okay? I mean, that's stunning. People say, I believe in science. That is not scientific. Okay? You can go with all of, all of, all of the animal kingdom. You can, you can you know, go back to biology in high school, folks. And we understand there's male and there's female. Okay? It's a very simple thing. There shouldn't really be any discussion about the issue. Or that someone who is male could call themselves a woman and then compete in sports. I mean, look at, look at the results of this. Okay, it's, it's stunning. We shouldn't even have to have such a discussion. But unfortunately, we do have to have this discussion. Because there are some very powerful people that are pushing an agenda that is more than anything else, it is, it is a rebellion against God. Okay, it, it's, it's, it's rebellion against reality. It, it's entirely a form of rebellion. And it makes absolutely no sense. But we still have to address it. So we need to understand God's design for male and female. We need to understand his design for marriage. We need to be sobered by the way that our culture is undermining these issues. And we need to understand the great distinction between these two worldviews. So I'm going to kind of send it up this way. I want to start with viewpoint one. And this is the biblical viewpoint. We were created by God with a purpose. And we're going to work through these passages of scripture and we're going to see what they say. And as we read them, it's going to be, well, very, 
very clear and very simple and very easy for us to understand. But there's some basic truths that really flow logically from that basic premise that we were created by God with purpose. For instance, because we were created by God with a purpose, we have an obligation to our creator. That means if he gave us life, he did it for a reason. And if he ordered our life the way that he has done that, he did it for a reason. So if he created me a man, he created me with a, uh, with a certain purpose as a man. Okay, If he created you a woman, then he created you with a very specific purpose as a woman. And we have an obligation before our creator to live in conformity to that purpose. Our existence reflects his design. Now, if someone is a scientist, they begin with a presupposition. And that presupposition is, there's actually order out there. There are laws, okay? In fact, as I observe the, the, the creation, I look and I say, it appears that there is a law here. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a whole bunch of tests. And I'm going to go through and I'm going to observe these. And then I'm going to... I'm going to have to adjust my hypothesis based on what I have, have observed. Now, that begins with a presupposition. The presupposition is there's order, okay? If, if we believe in science, then we believe that there's order to be discovered. And if there's order to be discovered, that means there's someone who ordered the order that's there to discover. So our existence reflects God's design. Three, our greatest happiness lies in his purpose. Our greatest happiness doesn't lie in us saying, you know what, I just want to self-express however I feel in this particular moment. No, our greatest, our greatest joy and happiness will be when we understand God created me for this reason. This reason is good. I'm going to embrace it wholeheartedly. And to the very best of my ability, I'm going to do what he has created me to do. We also believe that our value comes from him. The reason that you and I are more valuable than an animal is because we're created in God's image and they're not. That is where our inherent dignity comes from. It doesn't come from our strength. It doesn't come from our intelligence doesn't come from the season of life that we're in. It doesn't come from how much money we make or what kind of a job we have or what kind of a house we live in or what kind of a car we drive. All of those things are very temporal. That's not where our value comes from. Our value comes from the fact that we are created in the image of God. Our pursuits should conform to his creative design. And lastly, there's an absolute standard for what is right and wrong. So that is one side Okay, there are people, I hope everybody in this room, okay, that that is what you believe. And I'm going to go through the scriptures and we're going to see that that is what the Bible teaches. And by the way, you don't have to be a Christian to understand a lot of what we're talking about here. You just have to be willing to look at the facts objectively. But then there's another side to this. And sadly, this is where our culture is. And it's moving rapidly in this direction. And as it moves rapidly in this direction, it's extremely detrimental to the mindsets of people. Because it's going to cause them to make decisions. It's going to cause them to work from a paradigm that's ultimately leading to their own destruction. And even the destruction of the people around them. 
this viewpoint is very, very dangerous. And that is the, the idea that we've evolved through just random chance. In other words, you roll the dice, and if you roll the dice enough times, you can finally get that sequence that's going to give you what you want. Okay? Now, we know, logically speaking, that something that is non-living can't produce something that's living. Or something that's living doesn't produce something of a different kind that's living. This is just, these are natural laws. We can observe these things. Yet if someone's going to believe that we evolved through random chance, they have to violate those two principles. And from that viewpoint is going to come a whole bunch of, since this is what I believe, then this is where I go. Listen to some of these. We have no moral ob obligation to anyone but ourselves. I would call this a radical individualism. A radical autonomy. All I care about is me. And by the way, if you really hold a secular viewpoint, then there's no such thing as morality anyway. What right do you have to say something is right or something is wrong? Because we're just fairy dust that's evolving over billions and billions of years. <coughs> that's the viewpoint. Our existence is random. And ultimately, it's meaningless. Our value comes from self-expression, not from a creator's design. Our pursuit should not be limited by culture, peers, or higher power. The highest good is unhindered self-expression without restraint. There is no absolute standard for morality. Everyone determines their own truth. Now, a question. These two are completely contradictory viewpoints. And which one do you think is ultimately for the good of humanity? Yet, which one is prevailing today? I also want to say this before we get into some of the texts. We live in a culture that used to be heavily influenced by the first view. For instance, listen to this statement from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That's a pretty amazing statement. Truth, self-evident. Another way to put that is, if you got common sense, you look at the world, this is what you're going to recognize, all right? We, all men, are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. I believe that our president said something like, they're endowed by the thing. <laughs> and that's what he said, okay? Why, why in the world would the guy say something like that? It's because... Either he doesn't believe he was created or he's afraid of the peer pressure. But that's their declaration of independence. I mean, really, if you want to talk about our system of governance and the fact that we have a lot of the freedoms that we have, what the framers of the Constitution and the, the ones who wrote these documents, what they ultimately said is, well, there are certain things that these are inalienable rights, okay? Because God gave them to us. They're endowed by the Creator. So we, as a government, are not to, to take those things away from people. We don't have the right to do that. Even our Maryland Constitution. We, the people of the state of Maryland, grateful to Almighty God for our civil and religious liberty and taking into our serious consideration the best means of establishing a good constitution in this state for the sure foundation and more permanent security thereof declare. So what is stated in the Maryland Constitution begins with, that right there, okay? But that's not where our society is today. Everyone 
is doing what is right in their own eyes. And I want to begin by looking at Romans chapter 1. Because what you see in Romans 1 is that when people start with a basic knowledge of God and then they decide, I don't want to accept that basic knowledge of God. I'm ungrateful. This is where it goes. Okay? And what you're going to see is that the downward descent is going to go most fundamentally to the way that people view themselves as men and women and how they view morality when it comes to this issue of marriage. That is actually where it's going to go. Listen carefully to what it says. Romans chapter 1 verse 21. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now, notice what it says. They knew God, but they did not glorify him as God. Maybe another way to put it is, you look up into the sky, you look at the order of creation, you go, you know what? I see the evidence of order. Must have come from somewhere. You know what? I'm just going to reject that information. <laughs> I'm going to create my own viewpoint on this. I'm going, to, I'm going to move from a foundation that rejects that. That's, that's basically what's going on there. Or I understand there's a creator, but I'm not grateful to him for whatever it is. What does that lead to? It leads to the imagination being darkened. In verse 26, it says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. Now, one of the things that is a major part of us being human is not just the fact that we're rational, but that we are also affectional individuals. We have passions, okay? So when he talks about vile affections, he's saying, that some of the desires that God has created in us as humans that are supposed to be channeled towards God's good and wholesome purposes, those very same passions could be defined as vile. The idea is that they are bent towards dishonorable or disgraceful expressions, okay? So we could say that an affection that should be good and wholesome is now channeled in a direction that is against the honorable purposes that God had for it. Now, he's going to get very specific about this. Even their women did change the natural use. Now, that statement is an interesting one. Natural use would indicate that God, being the creator, has a design and a purpose for someone being a woman. That makes sense? And he goes on to say, and likewise the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their own lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly. And that word unseemly means it's shameful. Now, what those verses are telling you, and actually they're telling you a lot of things, but one of the things that they're telling you is that there is a purpose and a design Behind why God made men men and why God made women women. Okay? And why biologically women are women and why biologically men are men. There is a natural designed purpose for that design. 
And when people reject the creator and imagine that their own way is better, guess what they do? They take the desires God has given them and they channel them into vile affections. That's, that's what he's saying. Scripture is very, very specific here. Then in verse number eight, uh, 28, it says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And that word convenient is not like a convenience store, like, oh, I'm going to go pick up some bread or something like that. The, the word convenient has the idea of this. It is going against the designed purpose that it was given. Okay? That's what he's saying. So when we talk about these issues, what we're saying is God has a design and the way that we follow this design is when we start with our submission to him and our submission to his purposes and recognizing and celebrating that his purposes are good. So we see phrases like they were not thankful. What is that saying? Well, instead of being appreciative for God's design and the privilege of functioning the way that God designed us to function, they say, oh, I don't want that. Or professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I mean, that word has the idea that there is an arrogance behind this. They believe that human wisdom is better than God's wisdom. Their women and men change the natural use into that which goes against nature. In other words, the way that God designed men and women to function and the purpose of marriage and all those things, people say, I reject it. I don't want it. I want to do it a different way. Working things that are unseemly. Their abuse of God's good gift is not only unnatural, but it is shameful. And it is indecent. Very specific language. Not liking to retain God in their knowledge that it's a rebellion. Doing things that are not convenient. Going against God's design. So, Romans 1 is a very important passage in us thinking about this issue. It sets this contrast between the two ways. So then the question is, well, then what is God's way? Okay, so turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And I want you to notice this. And I just want to like lay out a couple of simple, basic, I, I would say, principles, concepts that we find in the text in front of us. And if you like to uh, highlight in your Bible, circle. I'm one of the, I, if, you, if you pick up my Bible, and <laughs> you'll see... So much writing in it that it's almost not readable anymore. Well, I can read it sometimes. But, <laughs> but if, you, if you like to highlight circle, I'm going to draw your attention to some key statements that I think are very important. So Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. It says, And God said, Let us... That's an interesting statement, by the way. There is communication within the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay? Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Now, we know that God is spirit. You don't see him with your eyes. Obviously, Jesus, we can see. One day we will see him face to face. But because he's God in flesh, okay? The incarnation. But apart from that, we would not be able to see the Father or see the Spirit. So when he talks about us being created in the image of God, he's not talking about a physical likeness. This is why uh, idolatry and the, the making of images for worship is forbidden because how do you worship a God through an image that does not have a physical body? Okay, that's the idea. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. It's a really interesting statement. In fact, interesting as we move back deeper into this passage, we see that God created Eve out of Adam. Okay? So he creates Adam alone. He has him see all these animals and he sees these pairs. Male, female, male, female, male, female, male, female, male, female. And then he names them all and guess what? There's not one for him. What's going on here? God was making a point. But he creates Eve out of Adam. So when he says... In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. He's emphasizing the fact that Adam was created in the image of God. And Adam and Eve are both image bearers as well. It says, And God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now, interestingly, God tells all of the creation, male and female, that they are to be fruitful and multiply. Now, that's an impossibility for Adam until God creates his wife. Okay? It's impossible. He's making a point. I think it's also very interesting that he creates all, the, all these animals, male and female. He does not create marriage for them, but then he makes a point to create Adam without a spouse, and then he creates Eve, and then he creates marriage. It's important that we understand. All of this is important to, to, to see. Uh, going together here and so it says verse 31 God saw everything that he had made and it was very good the evening and the morning were the sixth day now in chapter two what he does is he goes back to chapter one the the information that was given and he and he explains more more fully what's going on on day two and he's focusing his attention in on the creation of Adam and then the creation of his wife Eve It says, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Now, I know a lot of times we say help meet like it's a word, okay? But it's a helper who is created comparable to him and they're going to work together, okay? In other words, they're equals. That's what he's saying. And they're to work together. And there is an order In this union that is there. Adam is created first. He's going to be the responsible one. He's going to be the head. But he and his wife are to work together as a team. As a unit. And so he says. Not good for the man that he should be alone. I'll make him and help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. The rib which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And that's literally true, (laughs) okay? For for, For she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now the next statement is important. Therefore shall a man, and as Jesus put it, for this reason... That's the therefore. For this reason, therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother, cleave unto his wife, they shall be one flesh. Now, Adam didn't have a mother and father. (laughs) But Moses is making the point that a man, singular, leaves father and mother, singular father, singular mother, okay, and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Okay? 
So you know, with, when, when, sometimes people ask me, they say, well, pastor, is polygamy okay? Because I know some of the Old Testament people, they were polygamists. And does the Bible ever condemn that? And I'm like, well, hold on a second. Does the Bible define marriage? Well, yeah, it does right here. So even if God never, ever condemned it explicitly and said, this is wrong, which I will say actually that there is pl- plenty of evidence for this, okay? Even if he never stated it, you would know by understanding what marriage is that in fact polygamy was wrong. By the way, if the Bible never condemned homosexuality, which it absolutely does in many, many places, in the most explicit terms possible, even if it never was stated, we would know by our understanding of the definition of marriage that in fact that was an illegitimate union. In fact, I won't get into that anymore, but it would not be acceptable. It would not be viewed as marriage. So there's several important truths that I think that we can unpackage from what we've just read. The first one is that human life is sacred. Now, we talked about these two viewpoints. The one that says, you know, we're just the results of random chance. And the one that says, we are created and we have a purpose and we are designed. And we should embrace the design that God has for us. Well, guess what? The purpose and the design and the value that a person has and understands that they have is rooted in the fact that they are an image bearer. God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion. By the way, when we come back after the flood, when God institutes capital punishment, he says, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Okay, he's talking about capital punishment. And he says, because in the image of God, he created man. Okay, now we have lots of animals that were sacrificed. Uh, He says that people could eat meat. There is nothing morally wrong with eating steak and burgers and chicken. And some of you are like, yes, that's good. Okay, however, humanity is totally different. If someone takes a human life, that's murder. If someone murders another person, God says, the government has a responsibility to hold that person accountable. He even instituted capital punishment. That's not even just an Old Testament thing. It's also talked about in the New Testament. It's because there's a difference between humanity and the animal kingdom. Okay, sometimes people say, well, we're just another form of mammal, right? No, we are human. We are image bearers. We have intelligence. We're image bearers. We are made with a moral understanding, intuitive. We have consciences. We are created in the image of God. So we're not just another species of animal. We are moral creatures with moral awareness. We are rational creatures. Not all equally rational, maybe, okay. (laughs) We are rational creatures who can use our intelligence for good or for evil. We are created to work as diligent, responsible overseers who care for God's creation. And we were created for everlasting communion with God. And that's why we're going to spend eternity either with him or separated from him. God gives life to people through the natural means of human procreation. But God expects us to to have children within the context of covenant. And I'm not going to get into this one tonight... 
But when we talk about one of the purposes of marriage, we'll talk about one of the purposes that God wants there to be a godly seed. He wants people to marry and have children and to raise those children in the fear of God and to see one generation point the next generation to the Lord. That's what God's desire is. And he states it very explicitly in the book of Malachi. So what we see is that human, we could say value, comes from the creation. The second thing I want to mention is that our biological sex is sacred. This is not some issue that we can just tiptoe around and say, well, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. It's a very serious matter. In verses 27 and following, he says, so God created man in his own image. He created male and female. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now, if God didn't create male and female, then they wouldn't be able to do that. Okay, it's that, it's that simple. But he created it for a purpose. Biological sex is God's design. And there's only two options. Either you're male or you're, or you're female. There is a natural function for men, a natural function for women. There are corresponding roles in society, in the church, in the home. That God calls men and women to embrace by design. And so we need to understand that this is not an issue that we can just kind of like tiptoe around and, and ignore. What's going on in our society is not just illogical, it's evil. It's extremely destructive. I pray that people wake up and come to their senses before an entire generation experiences the tremendous loss that's going to be associated with terrible decisions that are going on in our society today. Because the fact is that some of these young people right now who are confused and whose minds are being manipulated by adults who have ill intention, these young people, when they become adults, they're going to have a really hard time in life because their bodies are being mutilated. They're not developing the way that they should. And the fact is that this is very, very destructive. It's destructive to the future of our society. So we should pray that God in his grace will spare a nation from what's going on. The third thing I say is that marriage is sacred. In verse 18 he says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. God, not man, created marriage. It wasn't like, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, there were these people that were like, you know, it's really unfortunate all these kids are growing up without uh, two parents. You know, it's really not the best situation where, you know, all these kids, like, they have no connection to two individuals, yet it takes two people to create them. Maybe we should create something in our society that kind of protects their right and privilege to be associated with just mom and dad. And so let's, let's, let's invent this thing called marriage because, you know, it'd probably be a really good thing for people. No. Culture didn't come up with that. They didn't. God did. He's the one that created this thing called marriage. He defined it. He blessed it. It's a good thing. And the fact is where marriage is honored and where people follow what God says about marriage, there is the greatest potential for human thriving. Not just in that unit, husband, wife, and children, but in the future units that will be established 
by those young people that grow up in a healthy family environment. And, and, and I, I thank God for his grace and that there are people that have overcome very difficult and very miserable and very harsh situations. I thank God for his grace. But the very simple thing is that God's design is so good. It's so sensible. It's like he's wise when he came up with this idea. God created marriage, not man. God, not man, has the right to define what marriage is because he created it. Man's attempts to redefine marriage is arrogant. It's rebellious. And we should be saddened and grieved by what we see in our own society. And it's not just America. It's all over the world. But not every society has embraced this. Not every society has. And not every society will. But ours sadly has. And it ultimately comes down to a rejection of the principles that really undergirded Western society for hundreds of years that, flew out, uh, that flowed out of the Protestant Reformation. There is no end to the kind of ways that sinful people can cheapen and distort God's good plan for this thing called marriage. We cannot embrace a rebellious system without devastating consequences. And, and here's what's sad, but it's true. That when people make decisions, and they make decisions contrary to God's pattern, God doesn't have to judge them in order for them to experience the hardships of those decisions. Okay? If I jump off of a building and I break a bunch of bones when I hit the ground, I, I shouldn't say God punished me. I made a choice to do something that was foolish and there are natural consequences that flow from such a decision. In fact, the way that the scriptures put it is that the punishment is not what happens when the people do it. The punishment is that the mindset's so prevalent. In other words, what's going on in our society is really an evidence that our society has turned its back on God. And this common thinking is the result of God's withdrawing of a lot of the restraints that he has graciously given us in our society. But when people are going down a path, they don't realize where this is going to end up till they look back. I think of this verse in Proverbs as one of my, I don't know if I'll use the word favorite, but it's one that just really sticks with me. It says that the path of the wicked is as darkness and they know not at what they stumble. It's like, here's a person making all these decisions and this is what my friends are telling me. This is, this is what people at school are telling me. This is what popular people that are influencers in our society are telling us. And these seem like great ideas. And then 10 years later, they look back at what they've done and they, and they go, I don't understand why my life is so painful and why it's so empty and, and why I'm missing out on all these things. And I don't understand. And that's what he's saying when he says the path of the wicked is as darkness. He says, but the path of the righteous is as the shining light. And it shines more and more into the perfect day. The idea is that the, the longer you walk down the path of righteousness, and the, the more you make decisions that are conformed to God's purposes, as you walk further down that road, you look back and you see the wisdom of God. And you see his grace and you see his goodness. And you see how his ways are far superior to the ways that the world is presenting. And so the longer you walk down that path, the clearer it becomes. On the other side, the farther someone goes down a path, the darker it gets. The less they understand. 
Until God in his grace sometimes, he pulls them up out of that pit. Maybe some even in this room or some that are listening on the live stream. You, you, could, you could say, I've experienced this before, okay? But that's what God does. So you say, well, well, Joel, what do you take away from this? Let me give you a couple of thoughts in closing before we pray. We were designed by a good, loving, and all-wise creator. And I know that seems like such a simple statement, but that's true. And what that means is his design's good. His wisdom's higher than ours. His ways are better than our ways. The greatest pursuit of our life should be, let me figure out what God says I'm supposed to do, and I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it consistently, day in and day out. I'm going to establish patterns of life that are conformed to his purposes. On the other side, our rebellious culture says that we've evolved and rejected the, what is really a, a glorious worldview. Now, I think that sometimes as Christians, we become very cynical and we can be kind of nasty towards people that are stumbling in darkness. I think that's the wrong response. I think that we should be saddened. I think that our hearts should be grieved. That there are people that have strong bodies and strong minds and have all the potential for so many blessings are, are missing those things because their worldview is taking them down a dark hole. That, that's a tragedy. And that's something that ought to grieve us. It's something that we ought to be saddened by. And we ought to pray that, you know what, that God will open the eyes of people and that we will have the privilege of pointing them to himself. And you know what, actually as society gets very dark, there are people out there right now, they flip on the news and they listen to things that are being said and they're like, this doesn't make any sense. I'm at my work and, I'm, and I have these private conversations with people. Nobody wants to say it because they don't want to get fired. They don't want to get pulled into the office and get reprimanded. But we're all thinking the same thing. This is crazy, man. This is chaotic. People really believe this stuff? And guess what? Sometimes those people don't have the worldview that, that drives them to that position, but they have sense and they can see what's going on around them. And you know what they do? They start going... Where are the answers to these questions? And if Christians will actually just do right and be distinct and stand on what is true and not just cave and compromise, guess what? There are people that are going to come to Christians and they're going to say, can you explain to me? Talk to me about your worldview. I've never heard this before. And, and you, know what, you know what it is? It's the things that they're observing. God uses those things to draw him to, themselves, to himself. And God does that. I've seen him do that. I'm just even seeing him do that in the lives of people. Right here, right now, in this community. And so as things get really dark, don't, don't, don't say, oh, there's no hope. The church can't grow. People won't get saved. It's so dark. It's so miserable. There's no hope. No, 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 no. The darker it gets, the more the light shines. And there's people out there that they're like, you know, I don't, I don't want that. I need answers. Guess what? God brings them to the truth. And that is an incredible thing to see. And you know what? We get to be a part of that when we are just faithful and we do what's right as distinct Christians. Third, men and women were created with functional difference. Common sense there, guys. Did I even need to say that? Our functional differences were created to, to embrace distinct societal and familial roles. If you're a lady, embrace the fact that God made you a woman. Don't, don't, don't be bitter against God for that or wish that you were a man. And if you're a man, don't wish that you're a woman. 
God didn't make a mistake when he created you. He created you with a purpose, so embrace that. Let's strive to understand what Scripture teaches about these very personal matters. I think 20 years ago, a pastor wouldn't have, wouldn't have taught on this. They wouldn't have thought they needed to. Maybe we needed to teach on it 20 years ago, and we wouldn't have been where we are today. I don't know. But the simple fact is that, you know, conservatives are behind the curve. That's just the way it works, okay? We're always reacting a little bit late, right? Let's delight in God's good design for our lives and strive to follow him diligently. Guard our hearts against the abuses of God's good gifts. There's, there, there are few things more damaging to the cause of Christ than when Christians who have the truth and know the truth stumble. We need to be faithful. We need to be consistent. Let's ask the Lord to help us with that. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I pray that you'll help us to take these very simple and basic truths that really are at the foundation of what Jesus says about marriage and really what helps us to understand what is lust and what is godly and wholesome passion between husband and wife. You celebrate. It's your design. I pray that you'll help us to understand the distinction is in your design and purpose. And I pray that as Christians, we will live uh, in a way that's consistent with the word of God. And I pray that you'll bring people to this place who you have begun working in their hearts, opening their eyes, pricking their consciences, showing them the emptiness and the vanity of a secular viewpoint that is so inconsistent with the reality of the world we live in. I ask these things in Christ's name, amen.